It's the same thing as we've had before. It's leftovers for dinner again. We had started into Jeremiah chapter 16. Be there in your Bibles. Last time. The introduction to that section is that, um, well, we, we suggested, we insinuated that Alan had misled us in our study of Ecclesiastes. He didn't really, but Ecclesiastes told us that there was a time to mourn, or a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And you might come to the conclusion that if it's not the time to weep or mourn, it must be the time for rejoicing, joy, and those kinds of things. And if it's not that one, then it must be the time for the other one. But when we get to Jeremiah chapter 16, Jeremiah is given several instructions. Don't marry. Don't have children in this place. You don't want them to see what all the children of this age will see. Not a good time for that. But he's told very plainly, so in Jeremiah 16, verse 5, do not enter a house of mourning. It's not the time to mourn. And in verse 8, he's told that it's not, as it, um, furthermore, it's not the time to be feasting or rejoicing. And so I sent you away with the um, request that if it wasn't immediately clear to you what this meant, go away, think about it, and come back. So now you're back. Now, one person cheated because they came, came directly to me after class. He's not sitting in Bruce's seat um, tonight. He came to me directly after class and suge suggested that there was an answer to that. But um, he's not here, so we're not going to his answer yet. It's on you. What did you discover or what did you already know that wasn't very challenging at all about this? Why? Why is Jeremiah given why has God given Jeremiah these specific instructions in this? So, what about it? Um, raise your hand and, and get a mic. Bill, get ready. All right. Who's going for it? Can you repeat the question? I think I might have an Yes, okay, so in case the question's not clear. God has given Jeremiah specific instructions not to mourn for this people, even though you might look at the, the, some of the things they're going to face and say, this is absolutely the time for mourning. Blessed are those who mourn over the sins of the people, right? But he also says, it's, it's not the time for rejoicing. And do not, you shall not be seen rejoicing or feasting or doing anything like that with them. Why did God give Jeremiah that instruction? You have the answer? I have an answer. Okay. Um, acceptable. And, and so I, I just ran into this the other day, so it's, it's not Eureka with me, but um, when Aaron's sons ran in with the strange fire, and Nadab and Abihu, and they did what they did, and God destroyed them. <clears throat> Moses told Aaron, don't you mourn. Mm -hmm. They got what they deserved. Mm -hmm. They did not respect God. Mm -hmm. And so when you first asked the question, my thinking was, 
this might be part of it. He's telling them, look, these people are getting what they deserve. And so at least on the destruction side, don't mourn because they're not even worthy to be mourned over. So if they're not worthy to be mourned, if they're getting what they deserve, we don't mourn. That's, uh, I think that almost has to be part of the answer. Um, that was also, uh, can somebody get Carrie? That was also um, uh, Bruce's suggestion. He says it's the same thing as what Aaron was told. And this, so this is Leviticus 10, by the way, and you probably, most of you probably remember this occasion. And indeed, yeah, you, you shall not uh, mourn for them. And he was, he was very plain about that. What else, Carrie? Well, I was just going to say, isn't the answer in verse 10 and 11? That's certainly part of it. Again, yeah. going back mm -hmm. to, to what Sam said, it's the idea of the great iniquity of the people mm -hmm. and what their fathers had done and what mm -hmm. this people had mm -hmm. done, uh, not to mourn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think both of you are hitting, so hitting on really the same thing. If it's fitting for them to be punished, maybe it's unfitting for us to be mourning over it. Now, there may still be a sense in which it's appropriate to say, all right, this disaster, I, I really, I, I'm really sorry to see that these people, even though they deserve it, are headed into this disaster. I'm really sorry for that. So I, I'm, I take nothing away from what you're saying because I agree with you. Yeah, say, go back to Carrie real quick. Yeah. Additional comment. When you think about it, God had sent prophets to these people time and time and time again, and they had ignored Mm -hmm. So now we're seeing the unfolding of God's judgment, just judgment on these people. Yeah, and that's, so that, filling it out by saying that, I, I, I agree with that entirely. So for a number of reasons, possibly, it would be inappropriate for Jeremiah to be mourning this. And part of that, I think the key that you're touching on there, and well, you too, Sam, is that what God is going to do to these people is just. Not only have they been warned about it, fair warning, and they're ignoring the warnings, but um, even beyond that, uh, yeah, they, they, God, God has uh, laid this out very plainly for them. So on the one hand, he, the, he's told not to mourn, and maybe, maybe we need to say something. We'll, t let's, we'll come back to this, because you didn't answer the question about the feasting. Why is he told not to feast? That's okay. Yeah, go, go Dale. What do, we do, what do we do a lot of times when we, when we mourn uh, for people who've passed? We honor them. We try to lift them up and make mm. them bigger th in, in their death than they are in their life, but yet if these people are guilty of, of, these, of these charges, then... You know, should we be honoring them? Yeah. I, I, it could be part of that answer, especially when it comes to feasting. Yeah, there's no eulogy for these ones, right? There, you, there's what good word could you say about them when they're gone? It's like sometimes people try, but it's it, it's not going to work, is it? Um, what about the feasting? Somebody say a word or two about that if you want to. Last chance. Yes, Miss Diana. I'm thinking about the fact that the people that were happy when Israel mm. was taken down, remember what God, God had no use for them whatsoever. Right. So I, I think that no feasting because you cannot be elated about this either. Mm -hmm. Sure. And people who are um, 
just enjoying life, living life as though nothing is wrong, as though no correction needs to be made, all of these things, yes, they, they're going to be in the wrong frame of mind to say to be sober and repent. So, let's think about these two things. On the one hand, if Jeremiah is found mourning and consoling the people... It, it would make it seem like Jeremiah is out of step with God's judgment. And if he's out of step, it's almost as though he's, he would be affirming that God, maybe this is unjust. All right, I'm stepping on, I don't know why there are rocks right here. We'll vacuum this place eventually. Um, they, yeah, I kept kicking something here. So, we, but, but Jeremiah cannot be seen to be out of step with the word of God and his message to the people, right? If he's mourning, it's as though, yeah, well, God, God is doing this, but I'm maybe not really aligned with him. And like I said, it could suggest or affirm that they're being treated unjustly. And to Carrie's point in verse 10, they're going to say, why has all this come upon us? As though they didn't really have a sense of what this should be. It proves they're not listening. But also maybe suggest that they, are, they feel like they're being treated unjustly. It's the Ezekiel 18 thing where the fathers have eaten, we're coming back to this, the fathers have eaten the sour grapes and we're the ones left with a bad taste in our mouth, right? And so that we'll see that, I think, in verses 10 and 11. So on the one hand, he can't be mourning or consoling because he can't send the message that God's judgments or warnings are not right and proper. And so it would be inappropriate. And that's something he might inadvertently communicate in this kind of, uh, if he's weeping alongside the people. Um, on the other hand, if he's found living and laughing, eating and drinking, celebrating, even this marrying, he'd be like all the others that Jesus points to. In the days of those ones, they were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, right? You remember this? There was no sobriety, no sense that there's trouble coming our way. And so, so what would it communicate? Well, that we don't really need to take God's warning seriously. Do you think it could communicate that? Um, if we're treating life as though, well, it's, it's no different than any other time, that there's no cause for concern, right? That there's peace and safety. They can just expect peace and safety. What do you do when there's peace and safety? All the good things. You enjoy life. This can't be the case given the situation. There's no peace and security. And so it's not that these things are morally wrong, but under the circumstances, they're inappropriate. And so God gives him this direct um, instruction. Okay, thanks for thinking through that with me and trying to get a, a sense of what, what's behind God's uh, instructions to Jeremiah there. All right. So here we are in chapter 16. Let's come down now to what we tease there in verses 10 and 11. So we've asked why. The people were asking, why? Why have all these things come upon us? They're still asking this question. This is not the first time they've asked it. They've been given an answer repeatedly. Why are we being treated this way? Is this further proof that they're not listening to the message? I'm going to say yes. So in verse 10, it will come about when you tell the people all these words, they will say to you, for what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity or what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God? 
And so they're given this response. Now listen carefully to verse 11, because it may not be exactly what you would expect. He says, we're being, tr we're being treated this way. We're receiving this punishment. But he doesn't start by addressing what they had done. It starts in verse 11 by saying, you, you are to say to them, it's because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have followed other gods and served them and bowed down to them. But me, they have forsaken and have not kept my law. So he starts by addressing um, what their ancestors, their fathers had done. And they, they're, they're going to be saying at this point, uh, we knew it. It's, it's what we always say. The it's, the, it's the saying from Ezekiel 18, the fathers have eaten the sour grapes, and we're the ones left with a bad aftertaste. And we're getting, well, this is, it's, it's unfair. It's not our fault. Well, Jeremiah would say, you didn't let me finish. Hold on. You didn't let me finish. You're even worse, is what he will say in verse 12. You too have done evil, even more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. You're more evil, you're more stubborn, you're more determined not to listen. And so, um, while God has his patience with these people... The fathers didn't immediately get blotted off the earth. Um, it has come to a point where God can no longer turn a blind eye. His patience can no longer continue. And so while it is true that God is long-suffering through all these rebellious generations, not wishing that any should perish, right? Even though that's his desire, he, he will come to a time where he has to punish visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. See it? And it's of those who hate me. Uh, that's part supplied by Exodus chapter 20. It's not just that God is capricious and, 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 and destroys people on a whim. It's these ones hated him just like their fathers did. They're walking. These are true children of their parents. The, the apple didn't fall very far from the tree. The children are just like their fathers. And being just like it, even, even worse. Well, they will come to know God on this basis, that he will, um, that he will judge their, their deeds. As we see from time to time throughout the prophets, there's this remarkable, just on, on one hand, he's talking in one breath, really. He's talking about the difficult and, and really, well, sad things that they're going to face. The, the, the destruction that's ahead of them. And in the very next breath, he's going to point ahead to what I'm calling a remarkable restoration. It's remarkable because it's not what you would expect. You wouldn't expect to see God being willing to do this. And I wanted to tie chapter 16 back um, before where we had talked about God sending them away, sending them away to disaster, sending them away to doom. But what chapter 16 is going to say is, I'm going to reel them back in. He's going to use a couple different figures. So listen to verse 14, um, 15, 16. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Therefore, I'm throwing you out of the land. And he says, therefore, this, it almost doesn't follow. Even so, therefore, declares, uh, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That was, the, that was an exodus, and, and God was known for that exodus. But now he's going to be known, verse 15, 
As the Lord, the Lord lives who brought us up, uh, brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. And he says, I'm going to send for fishermen. They're going to throw a net out there, throw a line out there and pull them back from their thing. I'm going to send for hunters. You don't think that being hunted is a desirable thing. Unless God is trying to hunt you in a way that brings you back in and shows his care and provision for you. Um, and so it doesn't matter where they've gone, every mountain, every hill from the clefts of the rock, these hunters will find the ones that uh, desire to return to the land. So he will restore them. First, he will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin. They've polluted the land but he will bring them back. Really remarkable. It says something about the God, their Lord, the God they served. And this is part of their, uh, the mechanism by which God would cause them to know who he is. But the other part of that, which is spoken to by the very last verse of chapter 16, verse 21, Therefore, behold, I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. And so are you with me if I say that the book of Jeremiah is about the fact that the people have not listened to him, but God intends to cause them to know him? That's what I see here. Yeah, go, Carrie. I just find it an interesting parallel. This is similar language, if not identical language, to Exodus 7, 17, where Moses is talking to Pharaoh, and, and that's what the plagues are doing. Mm -hmm. to, he will know, the people of Egypt will know, and even the Israelites will know that he is the Lord. Mm -hmm. So Exodus 7, 17. Good. Exodus 7, 17. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, everything he intends to do will, will cause people to know him all across the earth. Another thing he says he's going to teach them in verses 19 through 21 is that the false gods they were worshiping were just that, false gods. If, if they're so great, let them uh, rescue you from what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, they had their chance to, to call out to their gods, didn't they? And nothing, nothing happened. In fact, they were mocked for this. It's like, why don't you call out to your gods? What was that, chapter uh, 9, I think? I don't remember. In any case, yeah. Um, weeks ago, we read about, um, and you and I discussed this on the side, where they, had, they were actually sacrificing their own children, burning their children. And now we, we read that because of their fathers, three and four generations worth of punishment going to be handed down. Some might say, someone who is um, perhaps biblically ignorant or, or illiterate, would might say, well, that's not fair of God to punish children for the sins of their fathers. However, what this, and this is the way it, it, it works in my little brain, Today, in, in the Christian dispensation, if we are not walking according to the word, we are, in effect, sacrificing our children. And what we do is we, and we've all experienced this, experienced this to a certain extent in our lives, if you're not raised in a Christian household and you're not shown the way of God, 
then it is highly likely you will not show your children. They will not show their children. So the question, and I have told you I had a question for you last week. How can Put me I, on the spot. how can I, and this is a, this is a tough one for me to swallow because, you know, we all have a past, right? How can I, in today's society, not speak up against that which is evil and expect anything other than sin and destruction to come down on me and my family because I've got a son on the way. By the way, he, I think he's going to arrive on Wednesday morning. And if I don't, this is, the, this is a terrifying thing for me. If I don't speak up and I don't live right. Mm -hmm. Speak up to who? Are you thinking? To, to society, to, to, to the society. world. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. the world. Okay. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's very easy not to. Sure. It's easy to speak up here because I'm amongst like-minded people. Mm -hmm. But if I'm at work or if I'm with my, my, my earthly friends who aren't Christians, I've had to make a decision to, to cut some of them off. How can we as Christians today not speak up or only speak up where it's easy? That's my question. And we, can we call ourselves Christians if we don't? Yeah. Um, it must be done. It must, what, what must be said must be said. Jeremiah will say here in a couple chapters... I, I can't keep this in. It's burning inside me. It's burning me up. I think he had even said this once, one, uh, at least one occasion before. If I don't speak up, what's going to become of me? And certainly, if I'm not living what I ought to do, and not, I'm, not, I'm not what I ought to be before God, are my children going to suffer the consequences because I didn't teach them? the way they should go. I didn't teach them who the Lord was and what his ways are and all his acts for the children of Israel. And so, yeah, the consequences to you, it's the consequence will be to your children, all of those. Anyone else want to add something to that? Yeah, get Nate here. I just thought about this. You know, we, we look at and hear that they ask the questions and then it's told upon them because of your fathers. But then he also comes and says, well, you've done worse. And we think, well, you know, if we don't do it and our, our children are going to, there's evidence for everybody whether they've been taught about God or not. There's no excuse for not knowing him. Yeah, that's, that's very plain, very evident. And certainly for people of God who've heard something about his word, yeah, there's, there's, how, how shall we escape, right? How shall we escape? We need to go on to Ch Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17 is, uh, kind of recalls a lot of what was done and built on in, in Deuteronomy. There's another one there. And it's, it's the blessings and the curses. And what would cause blessings for God's people? And what would cause curses if they turn away? A lot of that is answered in, in chapter 17 and visited in this. But before we get there, we see something that is written down. Now, this is not just a quick sketch. This is not get out your pen. This is certainly not get out a pencil that has an eraser on the other end. Whatever is written down here is written with engraved. So this is pointing to something, and it has. this is an iron stylus with a diamond point. Uh, some of you might have um, one of these super metals that's 
a ridiculous metal and it will never come off if you actually have an emergency with your hand. But in any case, uh, it's going to take something pretty, um, well, pretty potent to make a mark on this and say, all right, so uh, love of my life, whatever the date is, it, mine doesn't have any writing on it. But if something's written with a diamond stylus, what does this indicate about what's being written? Shout it out there. Say if permanent. Per permanent. It's permanent. I think that's what's being said in Jeremiah 17, verse 1, where he says, The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus, with a diamond point. It's engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altar. I agree. I think it points to permanence. It's left a mark or a stain that can't be removed. Now, God intended, God desires for something to be written permanently on our hearts. Someone tell us about this. What was his uh, instruction? May he be in the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah. I can't hear it if you don't say it out loud. They were to teach the word to the children, to the grandchildren, and so forth. Right. was done. So the people would remember. Right. Yeah, the word. God's law. Who he was and what he wanted needed to be written. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your hearts, written down on your hearts. Instead, they've given themselves a tattoo, like a permanent mark on their hearts. A permanent tattoo declaring their love for sin, as it were. You've seen people who have, may come to regret the ones like James and Lynn, uh, you, know, um, you know, forever. Well, this is Judah and sin forever, right? That's, that's what is being said here. And in response to this, God will write down something. The same phrase is used in verse 1 where Judah has written this their sin on their hearts, they're so, they're so dedicated to their sin that they've written it on their hearts, so to speak, their love of sin. Well, in, like I said, in, in response to this, God is going to write the sin of the sinful in his records. Listen to verse 13. All who forsake thee will be put to shame. Those who turn, turn away on earth will be written down. They will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water. Remember this? Even the Lord. So, um, it's very fitting that God is going to write this down. Uh, what do we know about God's records? <laughs> if he writes it down, it's carved into two tables of stone. It's written on his, in his records. Is it permanent as well? Somebody say something? No? Um, yeah, it's permanent. It, this is going to be a permanent mark as well, unless they do what's necessary to remove that. And that's always going to be the case. We'll come to that in chapter um, 18. Uh, but, but you can think even of chapter 3, verse 13, where he said, if you'll just acknowledge your sin and turn back to me, in repentance, that's, that's what he required from them. And that can, this mark can be removed, but as it stands right now, it's written down. And it's going to be permanent unless something changes. Okay, but we said that there are blessings and curses. And that's what we see from verses 5, really through the end of the chapter, but especially through verse 8 and then through verse 10. Now... <clears throat> 
had this conversation with a couple of you that, and, and I haven't really done a good job of bearing this out in class. There's something going on in the message of Jeremiah, which is that he does, he is addressing the people nationally. Is there hope for the, is the, you know, the nation at this point? Based on everything you've read, shake your head this way. Start, I have one person shake, yeah. No, there's no, there's, this is a really, truly hopeless. They're doomed and they're destined for destruction. But at the same time, God is addressing people individually. And on that, in that realm, there is hope. And I, I didn't want to miss that, especially in these few verses. Because people who will turn to God... Um, we'll suffer some difficult times, but uh, God intends to bless them. And so here's verse 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. What's he like? Well, he'll be like a bush in the desert. He will not see when prosperity comes. He will live in stony wastes of the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Well, you get the picture there. That's not, not difficult to um, envision. I've been to Arizona. Uh, I was there uh, in the kind of in the winter. I forget if it was maybe January. And things were green, and there's like more green than you expect. And then this is Phoenix, and then I was there the same, the very same mountain in uh, June, July, August, and it was crispy, absolutely crispy. And... You know, that's what, that's what I'm, I'm reminded of here. On the other hand, verse 7, blessed is the man. Now, see if you recognize this from one of the Psalms. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And to emphasize it even great, more greatly, he says, whose trust is the Lord. What will he be like? He will be like a tree, not a, not a common bush. This is, this is a tree, a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought. They will face a year of drought. There will be heat. There will be trouble, times of trouble, but they are not, they're not fearing because their trust is in the Lord and he will not fear and will not cease to yield fruit. There's a bush in the desert, and there's a tree by a stream. Which one's going to be green? Which one's going to have fruit? Which one do you want to be? <laughs> well, we get the picture. Yeah. I was asking, but I assumed that everybody knew, and so we didn't actually have to say the answer out loud. This is rhetorical, Bill. No, no. Psalm 1, yes, absolutely. The, this, is the, this is the one that's blessed. So, this trust in mankind, this can manifest itself in a number of ways, and I think some of these are present in, among these people. Um, it can be a trust in self, in our own ways, following, especially in their case, these kind of, my ideas about the idols I want to serve and the ways I want to walk. So, it, could be a, it can be a trust in uh, self. It can be a trust in religious leaders, but the ones that are... Glad to give false words of comfort and peace. It can be a reliance on military might. Who can protect us from these enemies? If I trust in mankind, maybe I can get some protection. Maybe it's my trust in the political system. If we could just get the right people in office and cause reforms, that's what, that's what we need to happen if we're going to turn this nation around. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. Whatever manifestation that will take. 
On the other hand, there's the one who trusts in the Lord. And I began to say that this will mean uh, for all of us difficult times that are intended to strengthen, intended to refine us, make us uh, better, stronger, purer. Um, and so even though they're going to be carried away into captivity, God is going to watch over them. I'm, we can't go there right now. But chapter 29, when you get there in your reading, you'll see this. God's going to send them into captivity in a foreign land. This is not their place. This is probably an unwelcome move. It's involuntary, right? But God intends them to settle down, to enjoy the good of the land. He, he can bless the ones. He has the ability, even in uh, just troubling situations, to uh, cause blessings to come to the people who fear him. And so, uh, on that basis, there's no need to fear. Well, we're saying that the righteous are going to be carried away into, into captivity. That sounds unjust. Are the righteous treated just like the wicked? Well, uh, verse 10 has an answer to that. I, the Lord, search the heart. Now, the heart can be deceitful above anything else and desperately sick. The heart is what, in verse 5, is what turns away from the Lord. But the Lord searches the hearts. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways. So the righteous treated like the wicked. On the outside, it might seem that way. But God um, intends to bless them and cause, cause good to come to them. According to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So in the, so in the first part, um, we see that there are blessings and curses associated with trust in God or trust in man. But when we get to the end of chapter 17... One of God's key contentions with the people, and this has come up before, but we haven't focused on it yet, is that they haven't kept my Sabbath. The first of those commands that relates to their, well, the, 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 one of the key commands that relates to their relationship with God and how he intended his land to be at the time. They're not honoring me by keeping his Sabbaths. And by the way, as we read through this, what you'll see is God's demands are, are really, really quite simple. And by the way, in the most literal way possible, his commands are not burdensome. Think about the, 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 the God's uh, command to keep a Sabbath. This is rest. This is literally a picture of the fact that God's commands are not burdensome. He intends you to lay your burden down in uh, following him. And, and, and obeying him. Um, and the, the summary of this, I guess we'll need to summarize instead of reading, is that if they are willing to listen to the Lord and keep his Sabbaths holy, he intends to bless them, and this relates to the throne of David. He wants kings to come in and out among them. Um, we're starting to get a sense that this has to uh, point in some way to the Messiah because the um, the the bloodlines of these kings have already run out because of their sin. Um, and on the other hand, if they do not, if they neglect this, they're coming in and out on the Sabbath. Nehemiah talks about this. He had to take the people to task. He said, you can't do this. We're shutting the gates. Don't come in and out on the Sabbath. We're keeping this. 
because we want to honor God. And if, so if they don't comply, the land will have its rest. And um, this is Leviticus 26, verse 33. And it's going to have the rest because there's no wicked people to profane the Sabbath. In fact, there's no one at all to disturb God's perfect rest for the land. And so Leviticus 26, I will scatter you among the nations... As your land becomes desolate, your cities become waste. While you're in your enemy's land, the land will have rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. So either by their voluntary obedience or by just being removed from the land, God will see that his um, Sabbaths are kept. And by the way, uh, 2 Chronicles 36 verse 21 says, you know what Jeremiah said? It happened, and the land had its rest. It saw a Sabbath because there was no one left to uh, profane it. Okay, we're getting to a big section, chapters 18 and, 20, and 19, and uh, very, very significant. So here in chapter 18, a potter and his pot. And when we get to chapter 19, we don't leave the figure, figure, uh, figurative language of pottery and uh, potter. So both of these chapters. What you see in verse 18, Jeremiah is sent to the potter's house. What's this about? Just go and I will, my word will come to you. So arise, go down there. I will announce my words to you. And he saw the potter making something on a wheel. Verse 4, but the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled. It was ruined or marred in the hand of the potter. So what does he do? So he remade it, he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. A vessel that is this spoiled, it topples over, can't be reshaped. It's past, it's past that. It can only be remade. And so the idea is God fashioned this nation of Israel into a lovely useful vessel. But probably you might say due to some poor clay this did not hold its shape. Um, as he was shaping it into what he, he desired, it became ruined. That's the picture. And um, as, it, as it was with this potter here, the only way forward here is a fresh start, a clean slate, uh, a reboot, so that this can be remade. Um, and if you pair this with uh, chapter 19, verse 5, their twisted idol worship, it will say, is a thing which I, God, never commanded or spoke of, nor did it enter my mind. If you take that statement, it didn't enter his mind, and come back to this figure, and you follow the figure, the shape of this vessel, this, this people is a vessel, and the shape of this vessel is absolutely not what God had in mind. It's no use to him. It's totally worthless. And so, um, verse 5, the figure is made plain. The word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not deal with you like this potter does? Behold, you're like clay in the potter's hand. So are you in my hands, O house of Israel. And so God is the potter. The house of Israel is the clay. Now, the word of the Lord at various times to various people might be... Um, uh, positive, and it might be a, a negative message. It might be of uprooting and destruction. Now, what comes, it, it's built into this, and I'm going to ask you a question here in a minute, what, what this first statement sounds like. So listen to verses 7 and 8. 
and think of a nation for which this was the case. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, uh, uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken, he's, he's spoken judgment. He, didn't, he doesn't give any terms of surrender or terms of repentance even necessarily, okay? He says, if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, it's built in, he says, that I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it. Okay, if the word is that there's destruction, but they turn from the evil, God says, I will relent. Tell, tell us of an occasion when that happened. Nineveh, yet 40 days, and this city will be destroyed. Now, is God right to say, oh, they, they turned away? Actually, if we had time to turn to Jonah, we could read. And those people said, perhaps it'll be the case that God will relent. People know things about God. And even these, even these foreigners knew that perhaps repentance would be, it would be consistent with God's character that he could, he could relent from what he had proclaimed. On the other hand, um, as is the case in God's desire, he wants to build these people up. He wants to plant them. That's what his desire is. And yet, in verse 9, at another moment, I may need to speak concerning a nation or a kingdom to build up, to plant. But if it does evil, well, predictably, if they do evil by not obeying my voice, then I will think better, or literally, relent. I will relent concerning the good. And that's a, that's a strange figure, because relenting we typically associate with withholding something that's negative. But he's saying, I'll withhold anything good. And that will be, um, of course, a, a negative response then as well. But God's ways are good and right and eminently Fair. In fact, what we see in verse 11 is that a warning of this present coming disaster is specifically given to encourage them to come back. So all of these heavy words of um, disaster are to encourage them to come back. Um, and so he encourages them in very... Uh, with this pleading in verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm fashioning calamity against you. That's my word against you. And devising a plan, oh, turn back each of you from his evil ways and reform your ways and your deeds. Why? At other times he'll say, why would you die? What thinking person would choose to die at the hand of the Lord? And yet it's exactly what they're doing. Verse 12, in words that nobody would actually say, but it's in fact what they're going to choose to do. But they will say, so to speak, it's hopeless. We're going to follow our own plans and each one of us will act according to the stubbornness of his own heart. Nobody said that out loud, but that's what they're going to choose to do. The remainder of chapter 18 is more plans to undo and to uh, oppose Jeremiah's efforts and Jeremiah's words. And at this point, Jeremiah himself begins to kind of repent of all his efforts to pray for them, to speak. Uh, verse 20 will say he had been trying to speak good on their behalf, as Moses did, as Samuel would, to, to uh, well, cause God to perhaps relent if possible. And at this point, he seems for the moment to be comfortable with God carrying out their destruction. He can see, as we talked about before, that they deserve it. I'm not mourning this, and, and, and God, bring it on quickly. I'm, I, the, I, I don't want to go with this any longer. Verse 23, 
You, Lord, know their deadly designs against me. Don't forgive. Do not forgive their iniquity or blot out their sin from your sight. But, uh, but may they be overthrown before thee. Deal with them in the time of thy anger. Chapter 19. Take a jar, Jeremiah, and break a jar. He tells him in verse 1, go buy a jar. And if you think back to the last time he, he sent Jeremiah to buy something, you think, oh boy, not this again. He might, he might be getting a bad feeling about this. Because last time, what was it in chapter 13? You remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The linen waistband turned out ruined. Jeremiah was told to go buy that. That was his own money. Once again, he's told to go buy a, a, a potter's earthenware jar. And then it's going to be a... A, a figurative uh, lesson for them. Now, he needs to take some people with him, some of the leaders, and they're going to a specific place. In verse 2, it's the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the potsherd gate. Okay, the potsherd gate, okay, if I'm going out this gate because I've ruined a vessel and I'm casting out the uh, remains over there, well, that's not where you're going to take a, a brand new pot, Perfectly good pot, so that's strange. And this is also the gate that would go out toward the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And Chronicles and Kings will tell us this is actually, specifically, the location where they were burning their children in fire in sacrificing to their idols. And so the valley of Ben-Hinnom features prominently in the prophets. By the way, Josiah tried to... Um, deter all of this practice. It says he defiled this place and tried to, you know, uh, kind of get that out of, out of the people. So he sent out by way of this potsherd gate where it's probably they discard the pottery, other refuse as well. It's probably essentially the dump of the city. But again, you don't take a good new jar there. So what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Well, in verses 3 through 5, it's a calamity because they've forsaken me and they've burned sacrifices and it's this, the, they've, they've shed the blood of the innocent and burned their sons in fire. A thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever come into my mind. And he says, this place where they've shed blood, well, it's going to become a burial grounds and it's going to be absolutely filled up with, um, with the bodies of the, those who've been killed and there's, because there's no other place to bury them. Um, everywhere else has been taken. And in one of the, uh, so this is one of those great understatements of scriptures. These are, this is something that never even came into my mind. God is close to their lips, but he's far from their mind. Um, and so a day is coming when God will defile this place by, um, with uh, the, the bodies of, of the dead. So what about this jar? Well, that's verse 10. He tells Jeremiah, then you are to break the jar in the sight of the men who accompany you. And so he, he holds it up and surely there's going to be someone there that says, what, 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 what are you doing? That's a perfectly good jar. And you might think that as you look at it on the outside. But Jesus would say, there are people who can make the outside of a pitcher look perfectly good. Entirely clean, but what's on the inside? Iniquity, evil. What, what was it? Yeah, dead, and dead men's bones. So literally, in very, there's a very direct um, comparison here to some of the things Jesus would say. And, um, and you're, you're, you're going to begin to think, you're breaking this perfectly good thing. What a waste. Well, if it's broken, and you just can't detect that, God knows. They don't know. If it's broken... 
it's going to have to be um, uh, sm smashed and, and, and destroyed. And why not have some satisfaction in the, uh, in the process? Um, we'll come back to, next time we come together, to the fact that this is a pot that could not be repaired. Um, and that, that kind of touches on what we had seen before, that once it was spoiled in the potter's hand, it, it can't, it, you can't keep going, it has to be remade. And so maybe you can dwell on what that might mean uh, before we come back together next week.